Psalm 145 gives us at least four aspects about God that if you look out your window onto the circumstances of life, four aspects about God that will give you reason to praise His name. So when I look out my window, the first thing I see about God is the greatness of God. Listen to it. Verse 3. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty and of thy wondrous works, and men shall speak of thy might, of thy terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. As Warren Wiersbe simply put it, if God is God at all, then he must be great. If God is God at all, well, then he must be great. You know the only thing about man that was ever said to be great? Genesis chapter 6. The only thing that was ever said to be great about man is wickedness. <laughs> That's all you've got to lay claim to. If you ever lose this perspective of the greatness of God, maybe go back to other verses, but I'm going to encourage you to read Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah chapter 40, you'll read of the glory of the Lord revealed. The word of our God stands forever. It says that He measures the waters with the hollow of his hand. He weighs the mountains on his scale. He moves the islands and he draws back the curtain of heaven. That's the glory of God, the greatness of God. Consider this person. You see it there in verse 3. It's unsearchable. God is unsearchable. What does that mean? Does it mean you can't know him? Does that mean you can't know anything about him? No, it means you'll never run out of things to learn about him. That's what it means. He alone is great, as St. Augustine's great confession begins. Great is Jehovah. The more you learn about God, the greater he becomes, which is to say you'll never be disappointed. You, it, his truth is never diminished. How many of you know that things you own in life, the longer you have them, I'm not, I'm not going to suggest wives, the longer you're married to your husband, the more you're disappointed. Newness wears off. Something breaks down. The more you have something, typically, you know, it wears off. Not so with your relationship with God. The more you know of God, the more you learn of God, it's unsearchable. It'll never be diminished. It'll never run out of things to learn. It means innumerable. Literally, it means innumerable. And so we sing, count your blessings. Name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. That's who He is. Consider also what He does. It says there in verse 4, His works, they are mighty. They are told over and over. They are inexhaustible. Paul declared, not only is He unsearchable, but also His ways, His works, what He does past finding out. I'm weary. I don't want to make too many statements about this, but I'm weary of the so-called experts declaring the greatness of science because to my way of thinking, all they have ever discovered is something more about the intricacies and the nature of creation and God. That's what they're learning. When man was given dominion all the way back at creation, yes, I believe in seven or six days of creation. When man was given dominion, 
It wasn't because man is so great. His dominion is given so that he might discover the greatness of God. The squirrels aren't going to discover it. The trees aren't going to know it. But we get to know it. That's the glory of our dominion. The greatness of God is a generational truth. It says here we should tell it to generation and generation. And the world is working overtime to silence this generational truth. And when you turn to Judges and chapter 2, you know that it only takes one generation which will come after us if we don't tell them, if we don't declare it. One generation will come after us who doesn't even know the works of God, doesn't know what God has done, doesn't know what He's done for the children of Israel, and He may not even know, they even know what He's done for you. It began with creation. It's heard in the call of Abraham. It's experienced in the wilderness. It divided the waters. It conquered nations. It climbed Golgotha. It rose from the grave. It's seated in glory on high, and He's coming for me again soon. And all God's people said, yes, amen, amen, for sure. And it is from there that we consider His majesty. You see it there in verse 5. It's inconceivable. Right there in the middle of it, you see it? Majesty. Majesty means that for which He is to be celebrated. The thing for which God is to be celebrated. His power on display. Psalm 29 says, Give unto the Lord the glory. Do His name. Majesty is the sum total of all you have ever known, all you will ever know to be true about God. And it's not, majesty is not like a singular um, attribute that you know of God. So if you're a theologian, you know words like omnipotent. And... No? Omnipresent. You throw in words like that. So these are characteristics, singular characteristics we know to be true about God. Majesty is like a theme, like love. Majesty is a theme that runs throughout every other thing you know about God. It is glorious. It is majesty. It's not a separate thing. And then consider his judgments in verse 6 that we read. And men shall speak of the mighty terrible acts, and I will declare thy greatness. Terrible. Well, that doesn't sound very good, does it? Terrible. Your Bible may say awe-inspiring. That's what it's about, right? Is awe-inspiring actions, again, particular as it's related to Israel, delivering their captivity, judging their enemies, always saving a remnant unto himself. Yes, God is love, but never neglect that God is also holy. God is also holy. How you come to him, how you approach him, how you talk to him. We focus so much on the love of God, we've forgotten to fear God. As John 16 reminds us, He's going to soon come to reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Worship based only on love will at best be shallow, sentimental, if not superficial. Confession of sin unto salvation. Listen to me. Confession of sin unto salvation is not because God is love. It's because God is judge. I will answer. You will answer to Him one day for that which you have done in this life, whether it be good or bad, 
and whether you have accepted his son or not. He'll have the final say. I've seen the greatness of God. Have you? When I look out my window, the next thing I see is the goodness of God. Look on to verse 10, verse uh, 7 through 10. They shall abundantly utter the memory of thy goodness, thy great goodness, and shall sing of thy righteousness. The Lord is gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, and aren't you all glad, and of great mercy. And the Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works, and all thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. If the psalmist spoke only of the awe-inspiring, terrible nature of God and that He is judge, we might imagine a rather tormenting tyrant, a kind of heavy-handed judge from whom we might shy away. Like, I'm not sure I want to get to know Him. Everything He does is good, Psalm 100. And everything good comes from God, James chapter 1. It's not half-measured. It's not sparingly. Notice verse 7, it's abundantly given and remembered, which is a very compelling story. The goodness of God, abundantly given. That's what, the, that's what stories, that's what our testimonies are about. Abundant means eager. That is, God desires to give us good gifts. The goodness of God then creates a compelling story of which your testimonies are shared, sermons are declared, songs are written of the goodness of God. We're compelled in 1 Timothy chapter 6 because of the goodness of God, the living God who gives us all things richly to enjoy. That's what we want to tell about. And the abundant goodness of God is compassionately given. You see it there in verse 8. See, full of compassion. You know what that word is? Full of compassion merciful. That's the word. Same word. Merciful. Let's be clear. God is not good because you deserve it. I deserve it. We deserve it. But because He desires it. That's His compassion. That's His mercy. When God said to Moses, uh, somebody asked me this on a Wednesday night, when, when God said to Moses, I'll have compassion on who I'll have compassion. That is not an argument for hyper-Calvinism. I don't want to get off on a deep end here and push me off the cliff, but my friend, that's not, that is not God saying, I'm going to save who I want to save, and you can't do anything about it. That's simply God saying, I'll have mercy on you, not because you deserve it, but because I desire it for you. And we know that all who come to God, He will in no wise cast out. John chapter 6. That's mercy. That's mercy. Not because we deserve it. Don't ever for a moment forget that perspective. Otherwise, your pride will quickly become the enemy of praise. If you for a moment think you deserve it, or even I just think I deserve it more than the next guy, then your circumstances will quickly become a mirror. And all you will see is yourself. Now, now when everything's working good, Maybe that's okay for you. But when the wheels come off, circumstances turn against you, if that's all you've got left, yourself, your own efforts, that's when you're going to be hurting. It is pride which keeps many 
from trusting in Christ as their Savior. And yes, Psalm 148, right there where you're at, go down to verse 8, Psalm 148, down in verse 8. He talks about fire and hail and snow and vapors and stormy wind fulfilling His Word. As one author put it, yes, it's true. Sometimes nature praises God in a somber, minor key. It's true. It's true. But still His compassions, His mercy never fails. Also notice back in our text, it is universal. Verse 9, verse 10, complete. You see the word all, the little word all? See there? It's like three times in, that, in those couple of verses. Thirteen times throughout Psalm 145. The little word all. And so we sing, this is my Father's world. How much of it? All of it. And we say that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. But not this. Oh yeah, that too. Yeah, that too. You just don't know yet what God may be up to. So we see the completeness. God is before us with blessings and goodness, Psalm 21. He pursues after us with kindness and mercy, goodness and mercy, Psalm 23. We need not be afraid because the goodness of God is all around us. When I look out my window, I see the greatness of God. I see the goodness of God. And this one's curious, the kingdom or the government of God. Verse 11, they shall speak of thy glorious, or the glory of thy kingdom, talk of thy power, to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom, so three times, four times, is everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. Remember, David skips now a letter after verse 13 in his acrostic, as if to say, yes, the kingdom of God is at hand, but not yet. Not yet. Don't you long for the time when God will come and make every wrong right? But not yet. Does that mean He's not in control? For now Christ is our high priest. When He returns, He will reign as King. For you theologians may be remembering after the order of Melchizedek, right? Hebrews chapter 7, which we've looked at. For now he is seated at the right hand of the throne on high, but still very much in charge over the affairs of men. God's administration of this world is first powerful. You saw it there at the end of verse 11. Powerful. You might know the word omnipotent. All-powerful. On those days it seems the world is spinning out of control. God is still on the throne of this universe, and you can still go surfing. Even when you think the world is, is crazy, God's still got this. God's still got it. The throne of God is also glorious. Verse 12, glorious majesty. We were talking this morning in Sunday school about uh, the kingdoms, right? And we had... Uh, the Babylonian, what was next, Jack? Medo-Persian. One of the guys in the Medo-Persian Empire, Xerxes, or Darius the Great, in the Medo-Persian Empire, he is recorded in Scripture 
For the longest time, nobody knew much about him. Now, yeah, people are starting to say, yeah, there was more to it than we realized. But in Scripture, it says he had guests who came to see what he had. It took him six months, six months to show his guests everything he had. And today, we hardly know anything about him. Every kingdom of this world that ever has been, every great nation that ever is or will be, pales in comparison to the glorious nature of God's kingdom, such as the short-lived glory of man's kingdom and man's control. In comparison, the throne of God is also eternal there in verse 13, everlasting, enduring, generational. Every kingdom, great nation of this world is going to pass away. But thy throne, O Lord, Psalm, 100, uh, or Psalm, 45, Psalm 45, but thy kingdom, O Lord, is forever and ever. Conflicts of the world today aren't so much between people, but they're between principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. Satan, he's still very much at work. He is, Satan, is the great conspirator. But according to Colossians 2, he's also a defeated enemy. In the end, God will have his say. The government of God, his dominion, his kingdom is an important concept. It's throughout this psalm. It began there in verse uh, 1 when he said, I will extol thee, my God, O King. The kingdom of God. As New Testament believers, uh, God is called our Father, right? We call him Father, our Father which art in heaven. But never forget, our Father is King. And I'll give you one little memory from my past when I was ordained. It's a, it's a process pastors go through. I think it's an important one. And I took everything I ever learned, which took me about five minutes. And then, I, and then I went and talked to everybody I've ever known, and that took a little longer. And then I put it all down in writing, and you, know, you had to memorize scriptures and all that stuff. And then you stand before a council of, of pastors who've been pastors for a long time, and they try to ask you tricky questions. And then one old deacon got up. One old deacon got up, and we were in Romans chapter 8. And he said, if God is our Father, what does that make us? I said, saved, right? That makes us saved. I'm on my way to heaven, right? And I got all preachery about it. And he kept pressing the point. Until I realized what he was getting at in Romans chapter 8. If we are children of God, then we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ. If God is your Father, never forget He is also King. We're joint heirs with the Creator, the Controller, the Sustainer of this universe. And then to close out the chapter, Psalm 145, beginning with verse 14, the grace of God is seen. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. And yet as we approach the Christmas season, what are we also reminded? Although he's high and lifted up, he is also Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us, right? And so he's brought us through as if to make it more and more and more personal. Here in verse 18, it says he is very near 
you see how gracious he is? First of all, to the fallen. And this is important for all of us. Verse 14. The Lord upholdeth all that fall and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. He raises up all who fallen before him. Aren't you glad God's grace is not dependent upon your goodness? Aren't you glad for that? Abraham doubted God, fled to Egypt to take care of his family. I've got a family to feed. He fled to Egypt to feed his family, but that was totally outside of God's plan. But God restored him, made him a father of a great nation. David, we know the tragic nature of David's failure, yet God forgave him, restored him, and uses his story now to encourage countless others. Peter, Peter denied the Lord. Remember that whole story? And he, he denied the Lord three times. And, and uh, just a terrible failure. And yet he was restored. He was restored, and then he preached to thousands at Pentecost, and the church was born. I don't know if the cares of life have you burdened down. Maybe failure is in your past. But please, please, don't accept the devil's lie. Psalm 55 says, Cast your burdens upon the Lord, and He will sustain you. Never seen the righteous forsaken. 1 Peter 5, Casting all your cares on Him, because He cares for you. Where my failing, this is beautiful, where my failures are most obvious, Romans 5, where my failures are most obvious, God's grace does much more abound. It's more obvious, the grace of God. God is also gracious to the hungry. You see it there in verse 15. The eyes of all that wait, this is, a, this is an anticipation Thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou open. Notice how easily he feeds, he provides. How, how difficult is it for God to provide our needs? Thou openest thy hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Notice how easy it is there. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I won't lack. I will never lack. Notice that phrase beginning of verse 15. The eyes of all that wait upon the Lord. It's a phrase of expectation. You know it as in Psalm 121. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord which made heaven and earth. It's not a wondering. It's an anticipation that God in some way, when I look upon the circumstance of my life, God is in some way going to meet my need. I share this just as it pops in my head. I, I, when, when things, when I look out on my life and I say, how in the world am I going to make it? The first thing I do is I get some thank you cards. Because I know some way God is going to provide my need. Like your mama told you though, though it's a great and glorious buffet, when you approach the table, what did your mama tell you to do? Wash your hands, right? You just came in from, well, kids don't go out anymore nowadays. But your phone, your phone is a filthy thing. Wash your hands before you come to dinner. I don't know, but you know, Mama told you that. Make sure your heart is right before the Lord. James 4 says, before you pray, cleanse your hearts. Purify your, your hearts. Cleanse your hands. 
And then we approach, because God is gracious to the praying, verse 18, the Lord is nigh to all them that call upon Him, to all that call upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of them that fear Him. He will also hear their cry. The same reference, James 4, having cleansed our hands and hearts, draw nigh to God, it says He will draw near to you. Many people seem to be stiff-arming God. You don't want to have an intimate, personal conversation with God. So you kind of hold Him at a distance. Because you might otherwise find out something about yourself you're not prepared to deal with. There are two simple facts here about prayer, and we'll move on. Verse 18, call upon Him in truth. Don't hold Him at arm's length. Accept the truth. Don't try to be clever. And certainly don't avoid the truth. If God seems out of touch in your circumstance, it's probably because you're trying to go around some truth that He's trying to get you to understand. Verse 19, your prayer You must cry out to God in fear. It's a reverential fear. We talked about it earlier. Don't be disrespectful. Don't irreverently whine about every problem that you've got in life and why it seems so unfair to you right now. If you're a parent, don't you weary of that child? Don't you think God wearies of his children sometimes? Accept the grace of God that means that, in fact, you have more from God than you deserve. And if you don't accept that fact, you may just get from God what you deserve. And that's a fearful thing. These two things, disregard for truth, disbelief of His authority, could hinder your prayer. Avoiding the truth, unconfessed sin, spending time telling God how He's messed up, missed out on what your needs are. God is gracious to the fallen, to the hungry, to the praying, and to His beloved. You see it at the end. The Lord preserves all them that love Him, but all the wicked He destroys. My mouth shall speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. Our love for God does not earn His favor, and God's love for us does not guarantee a trouble-free life. It is the concept of preservation, of protection, of provision, through the trials, through the valley of death, through the difficult circumstance. I'm reading one author, and he put it this way. Think in your mind about some of the stories of Scripture. What if God would have pulled Joseph up out of that pit of pain? I don't want you to go through any of that pain that's down the road. I'm going to rescue you out of the pit of pain. A whole nation a whole nation would have been cast into uh, great poverty because of the famine that Joseph's life saved them from. What if God had delivered David from the spears of Saul? David would have never learned to pursue after God as we know his heart was. What if God had allowed Esther to escape the grasp of that wicked king? All of Israel would have suffered greatly? What if God had pulled His Son Jesus down from the cross? What would be your fate? What would be your eternal hope if God had rescued His Son? Our love for God in the circumstances of life deepens 
strengthens our relationship. How many of you know that you've learned more about God in the difficult circumstances of life than you ever did when days were good? And then David ends where he began. Personal note of praise concludes with a call to bless his holy name. When you look out your window upon the circumstances of life, what do you see? I see the greatness of God. I see the goodness of God. I see his government, and I see his grace. The grace of God that brings salvation, it has appeared 